Hi there, thanks for joining us. This is In the Green Room with Guildford Shakespeare Company and my name is Kieran Walsh. This is the podcast from the award-winning Guildford Shakespeare Company featuring chats with actors and members of the artistic teams, talks on Shakespeare's themes, interviews with leading figures or just catching up on a bit of backstage gossip. In the Green Room with Guildford Shakespeare Company is your gateway to getting more than going to the theatre. For over 170 years, Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol has been joyously entertaining readers, listeners and viewers with its enchanting story of redemption. It's a story that is familiar to millions the world over and has, in many ways, come to define the very spirit of Christmas. But how did it come about? What were Dickens' inspirations and why has it become so popular? To discuss these questions and more, today we're delighted to to the Guildford Shakespeare Green Room, Professor Patricia Pullum, who is Professor of Victorian Studies at the University of Surrey. Patricia is also a board member of the British Association for Victorian Studies and editor of the Edinburgh University Press Journal, Victoriographies. She completed her doctorate at Queen Mary University London in 2001 and has held teaching and lecturing posts at Brunel, Goldsmiths, Birkbeck, QMUL and the University of Portsmouth. She joined the University of Surrey in 2017. Welcome to the Guildford Shakespeare Green Room, Patricia. Thank you, Kieran. Nice to be with you. Before we get started on A Christmas Carol itself, can we ask what made you focus specifically on Victorian literature? So what is it about this period of writing that fascinates you? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I suppose my interest began at quite a, a young age. So I remember reading an abridged version of Dickens's Oliver Twist when I was about 10, I suppose. And uh, and then 19th century novels, such as, you know, Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, which I, I loved. Um, but it was really in my teens um, when I read Victorian authors like the Brontes, Thomas Hardy, George Eliot, um, that I really began to be aware of the period in greater depth. And, um, and I was especially fascinated by the inequalities and the limitations experienced by Victorian women, and particularly the tragedy that seemed to ensue. You know, they married badly, they couldn't divorce, if they, mm. if they had an illegitimate child. I mean, a lot of them, it seemed to end up dead, which uh, was a bit disconcerting. Um, but, um, but the conflict between the Victorians' um, overt concern with morality and propriety and the realities of their lived experience, I think, is endlessly fa- fascinating. And I think that's why neo-Victorian novels um, like Sarah Walters Fingersmith, you know, become so popular because they reveal what was deliberately hidden in in Victorian fiction. Mm, That's fascinating. So can we set A Christmas Carol, I suppose, in the context of the rest of that literature and perhaps in the context of Charles Dickens's life up until that point? Because he was only 31 when he wrote it, right? That's right, he was. And um, and by the time A Christmas Carol appeared, Dickens had published some of his best known works. So, you know, the Pickwick Papers, Nicholas Nickleby, The Old Curiosity Shop and Barnaby Rudge. Um, so by that time, he was um, a fairly established author. He'd been on a tour of America as well in, um, in 1842. Um, but before that, he had worked as a solicitor clerk um, and as a parliamentary reporter before he became a regular reporter on the, the Morning Chronicle in 1834. And actually in 1841, um, just a couple of years before the publication of the Christmas Carol, he was invited to stand for Parliament. Um, but he declined because he claimed that one of his reasons for doing so was that he thought he could reach more people and do more good as a writer than as a politician. And I think that probably might still stand. (laughs) Mm, mm. (laughs) Perhaps could you explain some of the inspirations for Dickens himself writing A Christmas Carol? 
Yes, um, I think if we if we look at the the books he published before a Christmas Carol, you can see some of the concerns with poverty, neglect, and cruelty, and particularly their effects on children. So mm -hmm. uh, Oliver Twist's early experiences in the workhouse, um, Smike's ill health in Nicholas Nickleby, Little Nell's death in in the old curiosity shop. I think they're they're all examples of this. Um, but I also think that Dickens drew on his own family background um, and his fear of debt and poverty. I think it's worth remembering that Dickens's father himself, uh, like Bob Cratchit, was uh, a clerk with a large family to support. And Dickens was one of eight children, two of whom died in childhood. Uh, and also that his father was sent to Marshall's Sea Debtors Prison in 1824, um, at which time Dickens was taken out of school and set to work in a lacking factory. Um, in fact, he was a kind of shoe polish. Um, mm. But, uh, but then he was able to resume his uh, education again in 1825. And uh, if you've seen the wonderful adaptation of David Copperfield uh, recently, um, you know, those of you who've seen it will recall that uh, Mr. McCulber is always running away um, from uh, debt collectors. Uh, so if you think that Dickens had 10 children himself um, that, that, that need to publish, to be successful and to make money could never have been that far from his mind. Uh, so poverty was always just I suppose even if, if, if it wasn't true in practical terms uh, psychologically that experience of debt and must have um, taken its toll. Mm, mm, that's amazing and I suppose the, the, the popularity of the novel as well uh, seemed to be set in stone from, from the very from the very start I mean the, the first edition sold out in five days so can you talk a little bit about this you know in the context that you've just described about the kind of the, the poverty of of Dickens's own life and the situation that he replicated in in novel form um, was this a surprise to him to, to to see such popularity in 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 the story and maybe we could set that within the context you were speaking earlier about wider Victorian literature and perhaps the importance of Christmas stories within um, Victorian literature did, did all of the kind of the joy that we normally see in Christmas stories was it the same in a lot of the other literature of the time as well? Yeah well, well I think that um, in terms of, of his surprise and obviously I think he deliberately wrote a Christmas <laughs> carol to make some money at, at Christmas so I think mm -hmm. um, um, that it's it's the, it's the phenomenal success was probably a bit of a surprise um, but um, I think he was a little bit disappointed by the amount of money that he made from it. So it was very well received. I think the first edition of 6,000 copies um, sold out on the first day, which is amazing. Um, and then by January 1844, um, 2,000 of the 3,000 um, printed for second and third editions had already been ordered by booksellers. So, you know, he could have imagined he was going to make a great deal of, of, of money from that. Um, but it really wasn't the financial success he expected. I think he expected to make about a thousand pounds out of that. And um, he made, I think, somewhere in the region of, of 500 plus for that, that first kind of range of sales. And he actually wrote to his um, friend and biographer, John Forster, to express his dis disappointment that what he considered to be such a great success should result in what he said was such intolerable anxiety and disappointment. <laughs> so I think, you know, um, he wasn't entirely happy uh, at that point. Yeah. Um, 
in terms of Christmas books, there was certainly there was certainly a tradition of the Christmas annual, and these were really like keepsake books. You know, the the um, the legacy of those is still available in in uh, gift card shops, for example. You know, we see these little um, sort of books to my mother with love and that kind of thing. They, they were very similar to to that, and they usually came in elaborate bindings, like the decorative binding of um, the first edition of the Christmas Carol, which is a kind of salmon brown colour but with gilt lettering um, and uh, but the original annuals would include poetry, short stories and beautiful engravings and they would have been aimed primarily at a, a female market um, but the Christmas story in the Dickens mode was really in its infancy um, so although some British authors had published books relating to Christmas um, for example Thomas Hervey um, published in uh, 1837 a book called The Book of Christmas which looked at the customs traditions and superstitions of Christmas and William Harrison um, also published in 1831-1832 uh, a book called The Humorist, a companion for the Christmas fireside which had these a series of vignettes that were accompanied very, by very nice and funny illustrations in some mm. cases. Although there were books like that, um, there really wasn't a kind of um, Christmas story in, in, the, in the Christmas Carol vein. Yeah. Um, I mean Charles Dickens himself had composed uh, a short sort of Christmas story prior to Christmas Carol, which he called, first of all, he called it um, Christmas Festivities, and it was uh, published in Bell's Life in, in London, 1835. And then that material was republished under a new title as a Christmas dinner in Sketches by Boz. Um, so he had thought about, you know, the kind mm. of commercial value mm. of Christmas at that point, but then it's with a Christmas Carol that, that he really sees the, the potential and of course he goes on to write another four books which are called, called the Christmas books um, which is the Chimes from 1844 and the Cricket on the Hearth in 1845, um, the Battle of Life um, in uh, 1846 and the Haunted Man and the Ghost Bargain in 1848 so he he takes his own lead <laughs> mm -hmm. and decides to uh, publish a few more in that vein. Um, and I think the other thing to bear in mind is, of course, that setting his ghost story at Christmas, um, Dickens also begins a fashion for the Christmas ghost story, which we still oh. engage in. And we've only got to think of the popularity of M.R. James's stories and the adaptations that they continue today. And quite often there'll be some kind of spooky tale on the Christmas uh, schedules. Um, yeah. So in that sense, yes, he's very much a kind of uh, trailblazer. Yeah. And was it unusual that, that, that he published it as a book rather than in periodical? Or was, was, was that a different sort of, sort of thing? I mean, normally people, um, Dickens himself did uh, publish substantially in periodical form mm. and then in book form. Mm. Um, so it was, um, I suppose, a little unusual, but not in terms of the, if you think about the Christmas annuals, they were published in book form. So I think that really it's, it's related to that tradition. Mm. Um, although of course it's a, it's a full story with illustrations rather than um, a, a series of kind of poems or, or uh, vignettes. Um, but certainly there was a market for that too. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And I suppose as much as it is that kind of like charming, life-affirming Christmas story that we see, as you mentioned before with your interest into the, the research of, of kind of like the actual poverty of the time in, that this Victorian literature was, was being written, it's also a powerful social commentary on, on those less advantaged in society. Um, 
Is it true that Dickens' first idea was to write it as a pamphlet and planned to call it something quite different, not, not a very Christmas title? Um, well, it wasn't so much that he was going to publish it as a, as a pamphlet. I mean, I think it, the the, um, the pamphlet that he planned to write uh, was um, was uh, in, informed by um, the second report of the Children's Employment Commission, um, and and I think that, uh, that Christmas Carol draws on on some of that. Mm. Um, so initially, it was going to be called an appeal to the to the people of England on behalf of of the poor man's child, and you can see how that feeds into A Christmas Carol. Um, but this particular report that was had been set up by uh, Rob Peel's um, Conservative government really came out with um, some appalling revelations. Um, so many of Dickens's contemporaries, um, including Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Elizabeth Gaskell, were prompted to write in response to it, as was Dickens. And it contributed to the rise of um, a range of novels called the Condition of England novels of the 1840s and 1850s, uh, which looked at poverty, working conditions in the factories, and the rise of trade unions in industrial cities. Uh, and Barrett Browning wrote a particularly moving poem called The Cry of the Children, and that's well worth a read. Um, and this report consisted of um, oral testimonies of thousands of child workers, some as young as five years old, who worked down mines and in factories. And that seems incomprehensible to us now. Um, but at the time, you know, no distinction was made between adults and child workers. And, uh, and they often worked the same hours and did dangerous jobs like you know getting into um, some of the machinery in factories to clear um, anything that was kind of jammed mm. um, and because they were five times cheaper to employ than adults um, they were they were used quite substantially mm. um, and they often contributed to the family income so when legislation was introduced to um, to uh, minimize the number of hours that some children could would, children could work according to age uh, some families weren't entirely happy because of course they were losing a substantial amount of their income and that can seem really hard-hearted um, but I think we have to look at it in the context of such little welfare support at the time um, so for example the Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834 which informs Dickens's depiction of the workhouse in Oliver Twist had determined that uh, workhouse conditions should be less preferable to those of the lowest paid labourers. So, you know, you could basically, you had to earn something, otherwise you were going to the workhouse. And uh, also they ensured that there was no relief outside the workhouse. So there's no recourse to parish charities or anything else, you know. Mm. Um, and married couples and families would be separated on entry to the workhouse. So people were in absolute fear of the workhouse. Mm. And they would mm. therefore take any job they could. Um, so this was all really designed to discourage people from um, relying on the state. But it was very harsh, given that there were just no grants to supplement poor wages and that people were struggling with a high price of food due to the corn laws that imposed high tariffs and restrictions on imported food and grain. And the period's often referred to as the hungry 40s and most famously epitomised, of course, by the Irish famine. Mm. So it was a difficult, a difficult time to be alive. Mm, mm. And, and, and how much do you think that, that Dickens himself wrote this novel as a way to try and represent that sort of poverty, but also to bring the sort of joy that we all know from the story into it? Do you feel as though that sort of the, the life affirming kind of quality is something that it has taken on in adaptation or do you feel as though that initially you know existed in the in the original piece despite I, I, all of the context 
yeah no i think i think it is i think it is there and i think that it helps if we if we consider you know who dickens is writing for um because um some people for example criticized him uh because the um the binding was quite uh, ornate and uh the book cost five shillings which really placed the book mm. completely out of the reach of the poorer classes um and uh, and others criticize uh, dickens's economic knowledge and ask why the cratchit family should be expected to dine on turkey and punch you know um but i and i, I suppose that relates in some ways to the kinds of discussions we see in the press and social media today you know there still, mm. still seems to be this section of society that adheres to the principles of thomas malthus you know who said basically you can't support yourself and you can't be supported by your family then you don't really deserve to exist um, but I think that for, for Dickens, he's aiming at the um, middle and lower middle class sort of reader and the Cratchit family, you know, they're not from the poorest sections of society. They're in fact the Victorian equivalents of what Theresa May referred to as the jams, you know, the just about managings. Uh, so Bob Cratchit is a lower middle class clerk who earns around £39 a year and to compare scullery made with earn about five to five to nine pounds a year so it's quite different and the Cratchits have four rooms in their home which um, is a luxury compared to the poorest mm. they had a home at all which share one room for the entire family um, and they have two children who work and they bring money in um, so you know if you look at it like that the idea that he wants to encourage his readers to feel hope you know to know that these terrible times um, can be overcome and that loving each other and looking after each other within the family you know brings its own joy um even in the in the poorest of circumstances um i think that's what he was trying to get across here mm. and of course he was criticizing um uh, you know people like ebenezer scrooge who had money and who uh, didn't believe in charity who did believe in this kind of malthusian idea that if you if you can't support yourself you don't deserve any help mm. um and his his change, the change that he undergoes, um, is is also, I suppose, trying to um, tug at the heartstrings of those with money who might feel a bit guilty, <laughs> given yeah. given the, the the story, and might be worried about what would happen to them, you know, if they continue mm. in their miserly ways. So, mm. uh, so I think, in a way, it's a kind of warning and uh, and an encouragement to be more charitable, and in other ways, it's trying to give hope to some of the families that find themselves in those difficult circumstances. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear that kind of like economic, like basically, uh, yeah, how important that is both to the like, like the actual material text and, and to the kind of like the way it's received as well. Yeah. Um, now, now the Victorians are often charged with being the creators of our modern Christmas traditions, trees, cards, crackers, etc. How much of this popularity do you think can be laid at the feet of Dickens's work? Um, well, certainly, a Christmas Carol has contributed considerably to our modern Christmas traditions, um, and this is due, I think, more to the numerous stage and screen and TV adaptations that are always available around the Christmas period uh, than to, than to the text itself, because the text itself, although it does kind of you know bring in the sort of Christmas period and mm. and uh, the joyfulness of families, um, uh, I, I, or family gatherings. Um, I do think that it just happens to coincide a few, few years later with other aspects of, um, of Christmas that we've come to take for granted now. So for example, you know, the Christmas card emerges around 1843, so around the same time as mm -hmm. the 
the Christmas Carol, of course, Victorian Christmas cards are really beginning to get more and more ornate and, and, and beautiful. Um, and uh, and also that things like the Christmas tree, you know, um, 1848 um, is when um, Queen Victoria and her family are featured in the illustrated uh, London news. Um, around the Christmas tree, which of course is a German tradition that Prince Albert brought, brought in, and which again was popularized and uh, taken into um, you know, the homes of those who could afford to, to have mm. a Christmas tree and, and decorate it. So, so I do think it's, um, it's, it encourages, I suppose, that kind of, um, encourages people to think about people who don't have as much as as they have at Christmas mm. and encourages people to be charitable mm. um, and it also uh, particularly in that final scene you know, that just the joy of of, of giving mm. which I think is the important uh, message there. Mm. Mm. Do, do, do you have a favourite a character or a scene or, or even perhaps as you speak about a different favourite adaptation as there have been so many? Well it has to be the Muppet Christmas Carol. <laughs> 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 I mean, how could you not love the Muppet Christmas? <laughs> <laughs> um, although I do, I still love uh, Alistair Sims' um, wonderful Scrooge in the mm. 1991 adaptation of the book. Um, but I, I can say that doesn't. I don't think it ages. You now I, th I, I think I've enjoyed every adaptation I've I've seen of it. You know, mm. because I think that all the new adaptations always bring something something new to the reading of the text. Yeah. And uh, and I think also it's wonderful to see new generations experiencing it for the first time. Um, so uh, so there's that pleasure as well. But it's mm. um, it's a wonderful book. Yeah, great. it's great, isn't it? Oh yeah. Well, thank you so much, Patricia, for being part of the uh, podcast. And um, you, you, your book just came out last week. Would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, um, it's uh, it's called the Sculptural Body in Victorian Literature, and it looks at Victorian writers. Um, erotic engagements with uh, statuary in, in their fiction. Um, and it's, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon that, that you find in, um, in Victorian texts. Um, and it's influenced by the, the importance of, or the in, in, influx of sculptural bodies into museums in the Victorian mm. period as well. Um, so yes, that, that came out, it's published with Edinburgh University Press. Um, and um, I'm hoping it's going to go down well. <laughs> <laughs> and where can people get that from? Can they just buy that online? Um, yes, it's, uh, well, it's available through the Edinburgh University Press um, website, but also it's available through Amazon as well. So um, yes, it's generally available. Amazing. Well, it sounds really fascinating. I hope everybody gets out there and gets their hands on a copy. I'd love to read that. Thank you. If you enjoyed In the Green Room with Guildford Shakespeare Company, we'd really appreciate it if you dropped us a like or a follow, depending on what platform you're using. All of these things really help us to keep continuing getting our word out there and to ensure that the work that we're providing for people really does help. Maybe you could recommend it to a friend or a relative. Thanks for listening again and hope to see you next time.